Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast, where you can learn everything you need to know about sustainable and ESG investing from leaders in the field. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. I'd like to thank today's podcast guest for hosting me recently on Environmental Social Justice, that's ESJ, the webinar program she created and produces. Wendy Nystrom is the founder of Basher Productions, LLC, and she's on a mission to help people find their solution to pollution. Wendy's an expert in pollution and environmental risk management and a certified construction risk insurance specialist. She also serves as a commissioner for the Department of Public Works for the city of Beverly Hills, California. Hello, Wendy, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Thank you so much, Paul. And I thank you for your show as well. Your messaging and communication is exceptional, specifically with ethics and responsible investing. So I really do thank you for doing that. Well, thank you so much for having me as your guest. The the, the faster mm-hmm. and the, the more people we can spread the word to, the better, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Well, I'd like to begin our conversation today by revisiting a topic that we discussed during the ESJ webinar when I was your guest, and that's the positive message embedded deeply within the data of sustainable investment about the reporting, the goals, and the issues and investment for sustainability around the world. How can our financial advisor audience share the clarity of that message with the people that they work with as clients. So there's no doubt that we are bombarded with information, especially as of late with respect to environmental justice, social justice, and the new popularity of environmental social governance, which is our reporting. And the best advice I can give to people is to keep it simple. Um, By that, I mean, you focus on the simplicity of the messaging. And as I like to think myself, if my mother can understand it, then I'm doing a good job of explaining it. Um, And also keep it positive. Um, When I first started ESJ, I had a lot of people approach me that were getting a lot of negative feedback, a lot of harsh reality of, you know, how dare you do something this way? How dare you do it this way? And the reality being, we've got to focus on the good. We've got to focus on the positive and keep messaging that forward. Because if you're constantly berating someone, they're not going to pay attention. They're not going to listen and they're going to feel overwhelmed. And that's what I'm trying to avoid. Um, And then also with respect to communication, as you know, I avoid certain nomenclature, certain jargon and acronyms because that is exclusionary language. You cannot assume that your audience will understand everything that you have to say. So I do make it a very cognitive mental adjustment to never use an acronym, never use specific jargon. And again, that message of keeping it simple. Great. Well, thanks for those tips, Wendy. And anybody who's 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 running a program like this out there can can benefit from that advice, I'm sure. And so let's let's talk a little bit more. Let's speak a little bit more about clarity. Uh, Wendy, global corporate reporting standards are clearly part of the future for sustainable investment and for all publicly traded companies regardless of their national jurisdiction of origin. This is a global movement now. It's encompassing everything everywhere. So how is your ESJ audience adjusting to the idea of global standards for publicly traded companies, which historically have been governed by the rules and the laws of an individual country or even a state sometimes? 
Um, so th that's a very important statement. So um, messaging is important. My audience in particular is extremely broad and diverse. We're in about 40 different countries. And I've spoken to people at multi-billion dollar corporations, and I've spoken to startups and entrepreneurs, as well as, you know, people that's, you know, housewives, people who stay home that want to learn what does environmental mean? What is this climate change that we're hearing about that's now a big problem? So um, I try to keep messaging simple and clear. I also keep my, you know, my guests are very diverse as well. I have interviewed you, an expert in finance. I've interviewed people who are um, entrepreneurs and startups and inventors. Um, so what I do, I am very happy that environmental social governance is being normalized. I am very grateful that it's actually now being regulated. And the meaning for that is um, when ESG, ESG became popular, it was often assigned to somebody as a reporting task in addition to their daily activities. Now, that's unfair to the individual. It puts them you know, in this new category. They're not well versed in. They may not fully understand the environmental impacts. And unfortunately, that led to a lot of greenwashing, which I like to call unintentional greenwashing because I honestly don't think people intended to lie. They just didn't know what they were specifically talking about because they didn't have the environmental or scientific background. Um, so as part of that greenwashing, we have seen some regulatory action. A couple of weeks ago, Deutsche Bank did have um, their regulatory agency rate them. And I read this morning that Goldman Sachs is now being um, right. reviewed by the SEC. Right. And part of that same article I read with Goldman Sachs being investigated is that 10% of all climate funds out there are aligned with our global decarbonization goals. So only 10% are following our decarb goals. That's that's not great. So we do need to have a kind of a readjustment and a realignment. And this is why I always tell people it's a team effort. It can't be siloed. It has to be kept in conjunction with a team of people with diverse backgrounds and a diverse knowledge base. And that's the only way we're going to kind of make it happen. Okay. So one of the things that I have focused a lot of time and energy on uh, in my career related to sustainable investing is the fo a focus on working with shareholder relations representatives from corporations. And they have been, as you mentioned before, part of the cohort of corporate employees who were assigned responsibilities related to ESG and sustainable investing that they probably didn't really understand. And one of the things that we're starting to see now is now that those responsibilities are becoming the, the direct uh, focus of senior management level within the C-suite of most large corporations, we're starting to see a lot more clarity of reporting and a lot more enhancement of reporting, especially as now regulators are stepping into the field. So that that's those are good signs, uh, positive things, as you're suggesting, and I, I, I'm looking forward to more of that over the years ahead. So now, what about the opportunities that are out there today for people like you and me and, and other subject matter experts to collaborate in the education of investors and their financial advisors about these important issues? We're obviously doing our own media thing, uh, yeah. but we found each other because we're doing the, the, our own media things, right? And exactly. so now we're having the opportunity to collaborate and enhance our messaging to our audiences and hopefully grow them as well. What are the kinds of opportunities do you see out there for people like us? 
So um, going back to when I started my webcast, um, it started during the pandemic. Everything was shut down. Nobody was leaving the house. And I, I had met some people that um, were being shamed or blamed for not doing the right thing. So I wanted to communicate to the general public, talk to everybody, not just people in my own world, not people in my realm. And um, having a background, so again, going back to um, jargon and acronyms, my background is as a geologist, geochemist, I worked as an environmental consultant, and then spent most of my career in environmental insurance and risk management. All of those divisions have their own language. They have their own jargon. They have their own acronyms. And that can be very overwhelming and confusing to people. And I can't even tell you how many times I've been to conferences where I've played translator, where um, <laughs> it's either a new graduate or someone who did a transition in their career. I'm like, what does this mean? What? So I not only have to translate what the acronym is, but what the acronym means and what the language means so they can understand. And that's unfortunately because so many times people said, well, you should just know what that means. And that's not okay. It should never be that. Should I, I'm more than happy to explain that. I'm more than happy to translate the language to you. And I myself was guilty of acronyms. I, I used to use them all the time. I thought I was cool. And I had a professor slap me down hard, told me, you sound like a jerk. He didn't use those words, but I'll, I'll clean it up for this. But he said, you sound like a real jerk when you do that. And that's when I learned, don't be exclusive. Don't use exclusionary language. And our opportunity with what we are all doing is to bring it to everybody, communicate to everyone, and make this language accessible and understandable because it is these small little steps, not only with large corporations and large entities, but the community to understand and the community to make these small changes, which is what my tagline is, is no shaming, no blaming, and every little bit helps. Every little bit will help and every little bit will have that change that we need. And, um, you know, that's just going, my most important thing, I think I said this before, was will my mother understand what I am saying? If I constantly keep that in the back of my head, I know I'm communicating to everyone. I'm not excluding anyone. Well, I think as we see more collaborative efforts at the local level for communities all over this country and all over the world and across borders as well, uh, we will begin to develop a better approach to this whole process where people are not being shamed and blamed, where they are not being uh, uh, spoken to from a fearful perspective, and they can find ways, their own ways, in their own community to participate in these long-range processes. And that brings me to uh, my next point, and that is Paul Hawken, the author of Drawdown, one of the great um, minds in our field of sustainability over the last 40 years— has said that there are millions of people around the world who are working on these issues that we're talking about today at the community level. And we have no idea who they are and where they're doing the work. But here's a, here's a, a, a straightforward example, uh, which you and I have already discussed a little bit. And that is Bette Midler, who is, a, as we know, a very famous performer uh, across many types of expertise. One of the things that she mentioned in a presentation when she was getting a, an award, a, a career award from Variety magazine, was how proud she was. She said, it's one of the two things I'm most proud of in my life, my ability to start a nonprofit organization that helps the, the parks in New York City be put to the use that they were attended for. 
intended for, and that is to help people have healthy places to go, good opportunities to get outside and interface with nature, even when they live in one of the biggest and most crowded cities in the world. So how how is that playing out in California, for example, where there's a lot of open space and a yeah. lot of communities and big cities as well? So I have to say, I love Bette Midler. I lived in New York for 10 years. So the park initiative that she did not only wasn't just cleaning up parks, but they would take old abandoned buildings that had been torn down and these were empty lots, and they turned that into park space in areas where children would not have easy access to places like Central Park or Prospect Park in Brooklyn. So everyone needs some green space. You can't just be surrounded by buildings all the time. It, it does affect you. Um, with respect to um, community outreach, there's a lot that's going on in many different countries. The reason I bring up different countries is certain countries in the European Union are well advanced in their climate initiatives and their, their community engagement. We're a little bit behind in the U.S., but we're catching up quickly. But then there are other countries that are way behind and they simply, they're not quite sure what to do yet because they just haven't been talking to anybody. They haven't learned and no fault of their own. It's just not in their wheelhouse right now. It's not in their you know universe. So that's where the global communication coming together, talking together needs to happen. I love environments like this where we can talk on video and it can actually be seen around the world. I mean, before COVID, I didn't really do much networking outside of the U.S. After COVID, I know people around the world. I this web My webcast is in 40 different countries. We're reaching people, and people are listening and paying attention and learning. And in California, there's, I mean, we're the environmental leaders. I mean, I'm sorry, we are. <laughs> we, have, we do so much for the environment and beach cleanups. And, you know, ur, um, urban gardening is coming back. There's the, a guy in Compton, the gangster gardener, personal hero of mine. He started planting vegetable gardens in that little parklet that's between the sidewalk and the street. City of LA tried to shut him down saying, no, you can't do that. Put the grass back. And he said, you want me to rip out a garden that's feeding my community to put dead grass? He's like, no. His exact words are a little more colorful. <laughs> but he sued the city. He won. And now he teaches children all over how to grow a garden, where your food comes from, why it matters. And that is gigantic. That is a huge accomplishment with respect to sustainability. Yeah, I think that the more examples like that of people at the local level in all of our communities who are really, in my, in my opinion, you know, the current and future builders and heroes of the global sustainability movement. Yes, it's important that in the business world we're very involved in this. It's also very important that we're involved in it in the investment industry as well. But it's people's habits uh, in the communities and the work that they do there that I think ultimately serves this pro this process at the deepest and most important level. And one of the things that Bette Midler said in this in this interview was that in the communities in New York where they have been very successful at taking the, the parks back and giving them back to the people who really ultimately own them in the first place is that the crime goes down in the community. People feel better about where they live, how they are, how they treat their community and their neighbors, and some really interesting statistics around, around urban 
living come out of that kind of a process. So uh, I don't know if you have anything else that you'd like to add to that, but, uh, you know, we're, we're having a really good conversation about how we can spread this around the world. Do you have another example you'd like to share? Well, one of the things I do want to point out that most people, you know, who are in the financial world who may not be truly in line with the, you know, climate change and the environment, social justice, is, you know, sustainability is always referred to as the triple bottom line. So people, planet, profit. People, obviously, social justice, you know, everyone deserves a good quality of life. They deserve to be paid well. Planet, obviously the environment. Let's stop polluting. Let's stop ruining our water supply and our soil. It's kind of important. We need it. But then people don't realize the profit side. If you have a company that's not profitable and will go bankrupt, that's not sustainable. You can have everything else, but until you reach that healthy balance, and this is with respect to your investors, is it's not about these shareholders anymore and how much profit you can make and how much money you can make. It's about stakeholders, the people in your environment, the people in your community, the betterment for everyone, because money will only take you so far. I mean, money's great. We all love it, but it only get you so far if you have polluted water, poisoned soils, poisoned atmosphere. And that's kind of the the messaging we're trying to give everybody is we're not asking you to not make money, just be a little more responsible about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was I was talk, talking to another guest earlier today about this this very uh, important subject uh, that is about a combination over time in our economic infrastructure of both public and private companies participating in this process. Uh, and his take on the whole process was that. Private companies really have the flexibility and the opportunity to drive change within the economic infrastructure faster than public companies, but it will ultimately be the large um, international companies that govern these processes over the long range. And I think one of the things that stakeholders can look forward to is as they participate in that process, whether they're investors, financial advisors, or just people in their own neighborhood who are looking for a better standard of living. And that is participate in the processes, and over time this will drive change within our social infrastructure as well. Absolutely. Wendy, I really appreciate you taking the time to visit with us today. Thanks again for the opportunity to be a guest on your show. And um, tell our listeners where they can go online to learn more about environmental social justice and how they can get in touch with you to discuss the issues that we've been talking about in today's program. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk about, you know, communication outreach with respect to climate change and sustainability. Because unless we're in this together, we're not going to make any effective change. So I do thank you for this opportunity. Um, To find me, um, environmentalsocialjustice.com is my website. There's a contact hot button. You can just put that in there, put in your info, and it gets to me. Also, I am extremely active on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. I am everywhere on LinkedIn. So please just find me, Wendy Nystrom, um, on LinkedIn.com. You can also find Environmental Social Justice on LinkedIn. And I post everything there. You can also just connect with me and just send me a message. Very easily done. Great. Well, thank you very much, Wendy Nystrom, host of the Environmental Social Justice Webinar. She's also the founder of that webinar. And for our listeners, join me again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, your host for the Sustainable Finance Podcast. (laughs) 